Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Kat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 220. I'm not being diplomatic, you oversensitive jackass. This week, we're discussing season four, episode 19 of Battlestar Galactica, Someone to Watch Over Me, and season four, episode 11 of Angel, Soulless. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. All right, uh, BSG this week. So, um, I mean, we get a lot of like character appearances in this one, but mm-hmm. it's not like, like there's really only kind of two threads like we were mm-hmm. talking about. Um, Starbuck and Tyrrell kind of have it. So I think that's kind of how we're going to, structure the discussion um although when we say things like that we inevitably go off on tangents and yes whatnot um, i'm sure we'll find things uh and and there's enough certainly to talk about with each of these but um i wanted to start off with starbuck and maybe just kind of talk through her whole storyline here um and and starting out just kind of with like the very monotonous routine that she kind of seems to have at the beginning right like you get the sense that like these are like she's having maybe maybe not trouble sleeping it's actually kind of the opposite it's like trouble like getting out of bed like she just doesn't she kind of slowly climbs out of bed and is like kind of going through the rote you know motions of getting ready and you know, kind of the way that it's presented to to us is, you know, just that she's sort of on automatic pilot here um, Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, She's kind of just standing in the shower, like Mm -hmm. letting the water run over her, you know, kind of drained, kind of um, not really, not really feeling, you know, ambitious like this isn't like i gotta go out and see all the galaxies and find all the things right Mm. like this is wiped out and whatever and i mean up for obvious reasons like you know because of sam and and some of the stuff there and then Mm -hmm. um also like what kind of comes out later is is just her thoughts about how you know how could she come back and like how could she like find her own ship and presumably her own corpse with her own dog tags on it Mm -hmm. like in the cockpit and like that kind of like there's you know maybe this background like mental stuff weighing on her too um that she just hasn't figured out hasn't really had time to figure out and i mean maybe isn't even possible to figure out what's going on there um Mm -hmm. and so you get things like yeah, like the, you know, plotting, sort of getting ready and taking her time, but then also like the repetitiveness of like our mission is the same this week as it was last week and, you know, the week before that. And, mm. um, you know, you get this very rehearsed, like literally rehearsed, like you see her sort of like, you know, saying pieces of it like to herself um over and over is mango making trouble no um uh and uh but just that like she said the same speech to like everyone and like 
Um, also the sort of bleakness of, so like we've seen like the Dogsville stuff with like the food, right? In Baltar mm-hmm. last week and um, whatever. But you also get like the bleakness of like, they're just running out of things. Mm-hmm. Um, with, you know, they're getting, they, they have to conserve O2. Like she repeats that, right? Right. Um, have to reserve O2. They're down to like, the last mass-produced tube of toothpaste in the fleet, apparently, <laughs> you know, and this is like a, a you know, a, a, a coveted consumer product. Um, right, it's the, will, it's the grand prize for whoever that, finds that will go to the person, habit- yeah. any habitable planet. Doesn't even have to be a good one, just like anything. Right, just if it if it's got some air and water, like yeah, that you know, we're not going to die when we right. drink or breathe the other way around. Right. Breathe or drink. Right. Um, so like the standards have lowered quite drastically as to like what we're, I mean, clearly we're not looking for earth anymore, but we're not even looking for like, even you feel like even new Caprica would have been like paradise compared to maybe what they're willing to accept at this point. Um, yeah. And, and it's kind of the Tiro plot, but like in the background of this too, that we kind of learn up front is that like they won't like the Galactica only has a few good jumps left in her. Yeah, right. So like it's not like way back at the beginning of the series when it's like we need water. Oh, we can jump through like to all these different systems to check and find water, and mm-hmm. you know we're jumping every thirty three minutes and like that kind of stuff. Like. That's all in the past. They've got to like, you know, that's why they're sending out the raptors and stuff is, you Mm -hmm. know, to try to find different, you know, planets because they like, they can't do it with Galactica. Like they got to, you know, take care of what they have and and, uh, really watch the reserves. Um, You know, wank as little as possible. Um, and well, and <laughs> and with that too, um, it, it, you know, you pointed out the rehearsed nature of her speech. That, like, even that joke, she right. not only is the joke the joke rehearsed, but she makes the same joke. Like, you get that she's just using the same routine over and over again. Like her exactly. speech, the, since the mission is the same, her speech is the same. Yeah. So even like that kind of brassy Starbuck thing where she swaggers in and has inappropriate humor. Like, well, the jokes are just the same jokes as last time, you know? So they're just, she's well, just running through the motions here. And based on what we see of her getting ready, like that's clear, that's an act, right? It's, it's, it's a part that she put on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, you know, I suppose at some point we could talk about like how much of Starbuck's attitude is just an act all throughout. Mm-hmm. Like, like maybe that's a good end of serious discussion to have but like mm. particularly here and now that brassness brashness like you were saying um when she comes into whatever the the briefing room um is very much put on because we know that's not how she's feeling she's feeling like she wants to climb back in bed and just sleep or wants to go sit next to sam in the medical center Mm-hmm. and that kind of thing um which is also one of the things that she's doing which is kind of a 
you know, uh, routine in of itself, right? Like it's that, which, which you hear about, like, you know, the spouses who have, you know, their husband or wife or whatever, you know, gets hurt maybe in an accident or something and they go to the hospital every day. But then like mm-hmm. Coddle kicks her out basically, right? Like mm-hmm. you need to get on with your life. If there's any change, you'll be the first one to know. But then it becomes like, okay, what does getting on with your life actually mean? Right. And for Starbuck, of course, that's going to the bar and drinking a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that's good or bad, like, right. you know, how much is she actually getting on with her life at that point? Um, well, and you know, as long as argue... they're, sorry, finish what you're saying. No, no, that's, I mean, just, yeah, like, like, is she actually getting on with her life? Or is it just like, she's just finding somewhere else to sit and now she's adding alcohol to the equation? Right, right, right. And I was just thinking with, with that monotony and that, kind of fruitless and hopeless search that they're on how much can she get on with her life like where else is there sure to go other than to you know the the endless repetitive routine of the work cycle and and the the self-medicating aspect of hanging out in the bar of like being able to sort of numb the stress and deal with that um, like there's literally nowhere else to go. And, and just in terms of opportunities to change your life, those are very, you know, basically non-existent at this point. So. Um, sure. Although, I mean, I feel like, cause like, it's not like things aren't happening on the ship. Like you, you have like Tyrol and a bunch of Cylons now on the ship who are like fixing things. Sure. And like theoretically, Starbuck could participate in that kind of mm-hmm. activity. Like if if she really wanted to like figure out a way to be productive and help, I feel like there are opportunities to do that. So this is um, this is this could be another like flight of the Phoenix situation where Tyrrell could through his handiwork and in kind of industrious let's fix that's fix or build something attitude could kind of be uniting a bunch of people in that and finding hope in the work I, I to didn't do actually, something constructive. I didn't actually think of that, but like, yeah, that's like actually probably a really good episode to like contrast against this one because I know we're not to Tyrrell yet, but then like contrast his work there with his work in this episode, right? Like, like, there is kind of a similar feel like not we're not building a new Battlestar from scratch or something, obviously, but like Mm -hmm. there is a sort of similar feel in like, there's this new material that we're using. It's Cylon, you know, biological stuff and we're fixing stuff and we're kind of the hand he's back to his hands on Mm -hmm. deck chief, you know, fixing stuff and taking names, you know, and, um, like, like that's Tyrrell at kind of his happiest, right? Is when mm-hmm. he's using his hands and and getting getting the work done and completed. And he's got, you know, his Cylon workers and his human workers kind of there with him, mm-hmm. um, working on that. But like, 
that's the comparison part. But like the contrasting part, I think is I don't get the sense that there's the passion in that. Right. It's like, mm. yes, it's an interesting problem and it's kind of a new thing to do, but like, it's not the same type of passion as he had when building the blackbird. Right. Like, yeah. um, so yeah, I don't, I mean, maybe that's part of it. Maybe it's just like, at this point, the repairs are just kind of, maybe there's an aspect to the repairs alone that are just kind of behind the scenes or not really as available to like other people to help out in the mm -hmm. same way that that, that project was. Right. Or not the, or they don't have the will to help out the way that they did before. Or, or yeah, or they're just, right. They're kind of stuck in their own stuff so much that like they don't even, they, they're not, you know, like Starbuck, they're not even able to sort of pick their own heads up long enough to notice that like this other work is going on. Mm -hmm. um, right. Certainly not getting the buzz that like Tyrrell got when it was like him alone, like, figuring out how to like cob job together a right. new viper or whatever. Right, right. Um Yeah, no, I never thought of that parallel either, but I actually think that works. So yeah, that's interesting. Um but back to Starbuck then. So it it yeah, it'd be like get on with your life. But for her that means, you know, sitting alone in a bar drinking. Mm -hmm. um and then of course like lashing out at the first person who annoys her um which happens to be this composer heckling guy. the talent <laughs> yeah um well right and i mean the question is how talented is he sure um you know which is kind of what she calls out to him at first right like um it's not the first thing she says, but the one the line that I read down is, "You want to be an immortal composer, you better learn how to play that thing first. Which is interesting because it's not that's not necessarily an attack on his talent because mm -hmm. like the piano is clearly not in tune. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's more like you need to learn how to play that thing. Doesn't become like you need to learn how to play music. Like period, mm -hmm. it becomes more like you need to learn how to like." coax good tunes out of that beat up old piece of crap mm -hmm. um right right but as with all starbuck compliments they come across as much as insults as anything sure. else you know um you know even yeah. later with the line that we referenced in the title when she when you know she's like well it's like better and then he's sensitive and she's like oh you oversensitive jackass i said i liked it but like she never did say she liked it she said like uh she gave right. like a a backhanded compliment and then is like annoyed when he's sensitive about it so like you have to sift through her attitude to find the positivity kind of buried down deep beneath all the cynicism you know well and there's also enough contrarian to Starbuck that like no matter how you take it she could always like turn it around to like the opposite way right 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 um, or she could be clearly enjoying it which is kind of maybe why she keeps coming back and yet the sense is that she's critical and heckling you know like she doesn't want to give too strong of a sense that she might 
like or appreciate the the music. Sure. Yeah. Um. So yeah, let's talk about Rafferty. Um, that's his name, right? Did I? Pick that I up think wrong? so. I mean, I do they ever use it in the episode? I, I saw it. I saw a reference to it somewhere. Okay. And so that's why I wasn't entirely sure because I don't think she does say right. his name. No, and I have um, seen reference to that name. The other one I've seen is um, apparently in like the script they would call him Slick. Um, I don't know uh, why. That's just the name. That, but like again, that's not in the episode either. Like I can um, see that being like a nickname she calls him to sort of offhand. Like sure, all right, right, Slick. But like right. I don't, I don't remember her. Saying it specifically, yeah, I it's can't not think of it either. That I put down. <laughs> then it must not have happened. Um, yeah. No, I don't think she uses any name, like in the right. episode. So I guess we can kind of call him whatever. I mean, or is there a family name that we want to put to him? That you know, like we can get into who is he and what's his relationship well, to all that. You know, like yeah, we that's the other to... part of it too. We don't have to, I mean... Tiptoe around it, yeah. Yeah, like the reveal at the end, right? Is it like, it's kind of all in her mind. Right? Or, and, yes, right. So, like, okay, I mean, should we should we ask the question? Um, well, I mean, I am, am I wrong? Um... Well, is there is something this, I'm missing? Like, what? What is there? Well, so ghost or projection? I guess would be the the question okay. there. And is there a difference? Well, so I you said know? I said all in the mind. I mean, I guess ghost would be the external thing that isn't potentially in her mind. Right? Sure. Yeah. Right. Right. So when, okay, if we agree it's all in her mind. Can we be more specific? And, and maybe not. It like, is this her father? Um, either in a projected, you know, psychological sense or in a external, supernatural, ghosty kind of sense. Um, or something else entirely or somewhere in the middle. Um, or can we even answer that question? Maybe not. Um, And maybe that's my answer. I don't know if you have a definitive kind of what's what's your head canon for yeah, how to interpret the the piano player. So Yeah, I mean I don't know. Sure. I I I, I I can see why. So I guess part of the part of my question that I don't have is like because we get references to, you know, we get Starbucks saying things like. Obviously, there's parallels like between, the piano player and like her father, where he's like, "Oh, my wife wanted me to leave piano playing, and I didn't want to do it." And you know, when we had a kid. 
she wanted me to get a real job and I was like, why don't you cut my heart out? And then mm-hmm. it was like, which I feel like is a, a thing that Starbuck would say, like, <laughs> I'd rather cut my heart out than not do this thing that I would want it, that I really want to do. Right. Um, and so like, yes, there's the very clear, you're just like my father, you know, he left mm-hmm. my mom, you know, at a young age and, Blah, blah, blah. And then obviously the connection of like knowing that her father was a really good piano player and taught her and all of this. But Mm -hmm. here's my question. If she remembers that much, wouldn't she remember him well enough to recognize him? Sure. So I guess I'm not I guess that's where I kind of struggle. Mm-hmm. I I think the implication there, and like like if we want to do like crit fic or whatever, like mm-hmm. the authors I think are intending us to sort of to lead us into the direction of this is Starbucks' father, and you know is maybe a, is either a projection or a hallucination or a drunken stupor brain thing, mm-hmm. to use a technical term. Um, I suspect that's where the writers are going with this, but like mm-hmm. they're also like, oh, let's play around and not really say it explicitly and blah blah mm-hmm. blah blah blah. And yeah. Aren't we so clever and fun? Um <laughs> so I I don't know, like maybe it's the alcohol that she just doesn't recognize him or, you know, whatever, or maybe it's that she was too young, but she has very explicit and vivid memories of Mm-hmm. you know sitting there with her father playing piano and stuff so i i feel like if she has those memories it's hard for me to believe that she doesn't recognize him and his face and stuff but yeah yeah again maybe that's the alcohol or maybe what i don't know i did sure so that's where i have a struggle of saying like yes this is her father right yeah. Um, father-esque? Sure. I'll agree with that. Like, yeah. father, father-like? father Yeah. Okay. Right. Like, and, I'm, on, I'm on board with that. Right. And one way or another, definitely in her mind. Um, yeah. And she, like, clearly triggers memories of her dad and, like, brings up things that she probably hasn't thought about in years. Mm-hmm. And... Um, whether this whether this fits the bill of getting on with her life mm. as Coddle tells her to do, I guess is another question. But um, yeah, right, yeah. right. I mean, it's a it's a going backward, literally, like in the sense of it's revisiting her childhood and her roots and everything. Um, so, you know, is that sure, is that a necessary going back in order to move on? Or, right. you know, like it doesn't, maybe it starts as a kind of like wallowing in the bar, but maybe that's not necessarily where it ends. It ends with maybe more, maybe it is that necessary looping back before she can move on, resolving some of the childhood issues that she still has. Um, 
you know. And, like, it's kind of one of those interesting uh, tensions with Starbucks of having issues with both of her parents and, like, her personality kind of being split between them. You know, that you have, like, on the one hand, this very militaristic mother uh, who was all about making her follow in the footsteps of this proud military career and, and motivating her to do better, to, to do better than she did, you know, like putting living this kind of living vicariously of it's not enough to have a military career. You should be the best and you should, you know, live up to these expectations and everything. Um, And on the other hand, you have this, you know, you kind of get the sense of maybe not when he was married, but otherwise would be like a starving artist kind of father, like the kind of, the kind of artist who, like you said, would rather cut his own heart out than not do his artistic vocation. Um, Which even though Starbucks went into the military, you see the influence of that in her painting and the fact that she does all have, have all these cassette tapes around of, you know, piano music and different things. Like when she and Hilo were in her apartment, you know, she's throwing on, you know, first I think reference to her father, the, the pianist is playing the tape of his back on Caprica in her old apartment. Um, with her kind of weird modern abstract art in the background. So even if she didn't pursue that as a career, she has this other side of her. Um, Mm -hmm. So. Sure. So I don't know, maybe the moving on is getting re back in touch with that side of herself and allowing it room to flourish because she kind of starts by like sneering at even the point of playing music at all, which is maybe a half hearted sneer. Like, again, is she just being contrarian? How much does she really even believe what she's saying? But like in the discussion about the value of the work, you know, even if it's Tyrrell building something that gets you a thing that gets you out of yourself, that gives you some sort of hope and purpose. Um, You know, she's sitting purposelessly in the bar and sneering at this piano player um, of like, what's, what's the point? It's not going to stop any bullets. You know, why have art at all? You know, and his kind of response being like, well, life is brutal and ugly and it brings some, beauty to it so there is a there is a point to this and well and yeah you know the counter to that too is like well how is drinking yourself into oblivion helping right like like it's not like she's doing all this helping stuff and so like even if it were like they're just different ways to cope with things like like what he's doing is at at worst no worse than she's doing right right at least what he's doing is beautiful rather than self-destructive you know in even if neither of them stop any bullets there's still 
you know, if you if you must put like a, a moral side to it, like, well, you could actually say that his thing, his what he's doing is more positive or more constructive. Um. So, like, do you feel, I mean, rest of the season aside, is your sense of the ending that by the end she um, has started to move on? Or, like, because I kind of like the idea of, like, all right, get back into in touch with your yourself in order to move on. Like, you have to go back to go forward. Sure. But at the end... She's, you know, listening to her father's piano music while she lays next to Sam. Like, she doesn't exactly look moved on in the sense that Coddle meant it. <laughs> like, you know. Right. Um, like, it looks well, like, and- if anything, she's more deeply back into the pain of her losses of Sam and of her father and everything. With with Coddle, part of the question is always, like, does he really care that she moves on? Or is it that... She just doesn't get out of my way. Move on in the yeah in the medical ward. Move <laughs> like, on from from move, this. Move your butt from the seat that you're in. Yes, and right. get out of my way. Right. Um, right. Not that I think I think we agree generally that Coddle's a softy at heart, but mm-hmm. like there is there's, there's always that question of like, are you just in my way right now? And I'm just telling you, I'm telling you like physically to move on, but there wasn't like a deeper like psychological meaning there necessarily (laughs) um yeah i i mean so i think there's a couple of interesting things because like if we get away from the piano player stuff too like not 100 percent away from it but like there's Hera, right Mm. like who gives her this drawing that she says is of the stars right Mm -hmm. And it turns out to be like, oh, these are positioned perfectly to act like notes on a page. And so that turns into the music, the the melody line of all along the watchtower of Mm -hmm. the music that the Cylons hear, uh, that the final five hear. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a couple interesting things going on there. One... Um, very interesting with like the drawing and the circles because that's like that's Starbuck. That's what she was doing, like with the drawing and like the explosion of mm-hmm. you know the supernova and like that kind of thing, like the the whole cir- circular motif of it and like the star, like that's a star of an exploding star. And um, well, and, so- and she says she used to do it when she was little too, of like oh I used to do it all this always the same pattern I liked right, it right. when I was a kid, so it so there, connects them. Yeah, there's definitely a kind of parallel between her and Hera in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, I mean, I don't know how much to make of that, but just kind of noting it. Um, the other, the other piece of it is um, with the music. Um, start. I mean, obviously, like Starbuck doesn't hasn't heard like the music and stuff, but like, there's certainly like a sort of like, like with her ship picking up signal, you know, and that kind of thing. Like, there's there's this sort of 
like the nebulous like thing that only she can detect and nobody else can and so there's kind of a parallel there with the music and stuff mm -hmm. but then like where so what is like she's getting she's getting the melody line notes from Hera but mm -hmm. there's also like this idea of like she's hearing her own kind of music here and it's mm -hmm. when she's put when she puts that together that's when it comes out with you know mm -hmm. Ty who's also drunk off his board of course <laughs> of like what is this music that I'm hearing again yeah. you know where is that coming from um, shit. yeah well right which of course it never was so, um but yeah, I mean, so there's there's a connection there between the music she's hearing because all right, if so help me remember cuz like there's this like she talks about like Rafferty ripping off a composer mm -hmm. which she happens to know because like it's something her dad played and then like, okay, if Rafferty's her dad then okay, that makes sense, I guess, whatever. But then like there's actually there is a thing that he's composing. So is this like, are we meant to believe that this is like something her dad was composing at one point when, when, when like he was still around that she just kind of remembers or know. is this, or is this a, a different thing, sim more, more similar to the Cylon thing of where it's, she's actually picking up on something more like cosmic and moving mm -hmm. or, or that is just in her own mind that she's kind of, composing in a way but then which like ends up kind of fitting in with the music and notes that Hera comes in which then brings up the question is so is then she's is Starbucks somehow hearing the same music that the final five are hearing hmm. well I don't know if this answers the question but in in maybe in favor of the there's cosmic significance to this camp um there is like some meta textual elements to I don't think the 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 bass part that he plays like like his accompaniment of her melody exactly, but in the bit where he's riffing on something and she says like, Oh, you stole that piece from, you know, Nomian's third snot or whatever. Um, some of that bits and pieces of it are elements of the score from the original series. So like there's that self-referential aspect of like, oh, it's in the world, before. in well, this has all happened before. And also like in the world, this is a known piece of music. Um, but like if it's riffing on like the theme song of the show, then like, of course it has big cosmic significance. You know, it can't help but have that. Um, so yeah, I guess... I don't know that that answers your question, but um, yeah, I don't get the sense that he's com he or she is composing that necessarily. I my feeling is more that it's like that tapping into something well older so and larger, and you know, does that make it not composing though? Because like that isn't that sure. like isn't that the artist uh, thing of like is it. Are they are they are they actually writing or creating or are they channeling? Mm. Right? Like isn't isn't that like the whole question of like I mean, you know, 
Sure. I guess I guess the answer to that could depend on how like mystical and spiritual you are. But like right. we've seen Starbucks be both, you yes. know, materialistic and spiritual. And so mm-hmm. when I say composing, like maybe composing is like trying to hear, you know, the music of the universe, like mm-hmm. in kind of a metaphorical way. And right. like, you know, adapting that into like the notes on a piano board um right well and that's kind of what ellen says at the end of Hera's tapped into something that's manipulating us so it, you can extend that how much is kara's kara slash the the pianist's composition tapping into something or being manipulated by something um or inspired by or whatever adjective you want to you know, depending on how intrusive or benevolent you want to make whatever it is sound like, you know, that they're being influenced in some way by something larger. They're not just like, it's not, art here isn't purely self-generated or conscious. It's a kind of subliminal connection with some other plan is sort of the implication. All right. So I don't know, like maybe I shouldn't bring it up because I successfully avoided answering it. Um, But I don't know like if she's actually moved on at the end or not, I guess. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's figured out this tune, right? Like, and that there's like a connection there with Hera and like all of that. So like, probably plot perspective that seems important considering that Hera is gone by the mm-hmm. end of the episode mm-hmm. um which we should talk about that thread like yeah and stuff um well and I guess maybe it's the last last thing for Kara to just the continued importance of music and like increasingly even more so like getting more and more important like in the text of the story itself like was always prominent in the story. But like, I think starting with that first vision of the opera house and then getting more and more each time it comes up, like music as a thing, which is central to the plot, you know, um, is kind of, you know, just a, a, a theme that keeps getting stronger. Mm-hmm. Sure. All right. Um, so jumping over to Tyrol, uh, there's kind of, so we'll pick up his thread. I mean, we already kind of talked about like the continuing of the repairs on Galactica. I don't know what more there is to say about that other than just like, there's lots of repairs going on. Even with those repairs though, like it seems like Galactica is on its last legs and, you know, there's like power outages and, you know, materials are hard to come by and all of that kind of thing. Um, and he gives us all in like, a like there's the exposition of like, I'm reporting this to my leaders and also the audience. Um, mm-hmm. Which we also there learn that now there's a Cylon, a, a, a six named Sonia, who has been voted 
as a quorum official, right? Mm -hmm. A quorum member or whatever you call it, which seems to imply a couple of things, I think. And tell me if you have a different understanding or whatever. Mm -hmm. One is that Lee's uh, proposal to have representation by ship has gone through. Because I can't imagine that if we were still doing it by planet that any yeah. Cylon would get voted in. Yes. But if I, we're doing it by ship, right. then this becomes, well, the base star right. is a ship in the fleet now because they have full protection. Like that was part of the deal, right? Mm -hmm. And now, which means they now get their own quorum member too. Yep. Yes, um, that is how I read that. So that's part of it. Um, then the other part is just that, uh, well, I guess that's kind of the two parts. So it was that Lee's plan to do it by ship came through, but then like now you have this, it's not just an inter, it's just not, it's not just a partnership. Like this is like a legitimate like integration of the Cylons into their, mm -hmm. you know, community their fleet their whatever um not just we're bringing some cylons on to help do some work but like they're act actively a part of maybe a minority part but like they're actively a part of like making laws and mm -hmm. having diplomatic more or less relations with the rest you know the other people in the fleet right um yeah and of course, it's a six. Yeah. Yeah. Would. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess you could make an argument for maybe others, but like. No. That just makes sense. Yeah. No, they're the charismatic leaders. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think Sharon's, the eights are a little too much of followers, seem to be by nature. And, and the Leovins are just off doing whatever in their own little world you yeah, know Le like i think Le it, it had to be a six Le leo bin's too like philosophical to like do anything practical right um yeah um but what comes out here is that then sonia says you know reveals that oh hey and by the way now that like we're part of the fleet mill we're going to be requesting like that you hand over boomer to us um and not like to let her off like everyone sort of initially thinks but because she's a traitor and you know we're gonna try her as such and you know why not like the humans have tried everything and so what we're gonna do is we're gonna try some capital punishment now now that like we can actually die we're gonna we're gonna try our hand at capital punishment <laughs> um and yeah, fantastic uh, idea you know, and of course, of course, Tyrrell is appalled. So here's the thing. So like we've we talked a little bit, I think, before about Tyrrell's comments about Callie being like the best of limited choices. Sure. Um, are we getting some retconning here of like the boomer Tyrrell relationship a mm. bit? Um, and not to say like I think very early on. Like, there is legitimate love and whatever. But then it's like, 
now we've got like Tyrrell and Boomer in the at the brig. And I guess on the one hand, we can talk about how much we can believe what Boomer says or projects or any of that stuff. Like how mm-hmm. much of it is legitimate versus manipulative. Um, but even on Tyrrell's part, like there was a lot of anger and hatred. And like, I get that like now he knows he's a Cylon, but like, I don't know. Like it, it, I, I kind of struggle. Mm-hmm. I'll, so I'll, I'll, not to just ask questions and like then let you answer it. Like I'll admit, like I kind of struggle with some of the way their past relationship is presented from his point of view. Mm-hmm. And like and like I still kind of struggle with like how his character characterizes Callie. Because mm. I just I don't feel like that is actually true mm. in the way that we see it play out like with their relationship on New Caprica and like even after mm-hmm. and it it feels to me only like when the so I'm totally crit thinking yeah again but like when the but, writers but you like, can do that when you admit it <laughs> sure. like if you if you put the disclaimer that yeah, yeah go for what it what I feel like Totally not knowing anything about yes. what the Admitting writers Admitting that actually, we don't know what the writers intend. I feel like when the writers were like, okay, we got to figure out who these final five were. Let's make Tyrrell one of them. Well, there's some problems, so we got to figure out like some stuff. Like That to me feels like when they were like, hey, let's just play off the whole Callie thing as like a second best hmm. option. Um, and so now to go back to like sort of repaint the boomer stuff as like the love of ages i don't know it just feels to me Mm -hmm. not quite right um but i'm i'm happy to hear your take on it and if you disagree so be it um but but any any thoughts there so i i like it but i like it because my sense has always been that that is true for Tyrrell the character. Like the the retcon that's happening, the in both directions, both the disappointment with Callie and the kind of rosy-eyed, you know, um rewriting of history with Boomer is is like the the something that is Tyrrell's problem more than the writers if that makes sense like that that's part of the I feel like that's an intentional characterization if I'm gonna crit thick is like that's part of the the writing of the story of it is like yeah when he was when he was first now all right when he first gets together with Callie I said at the time and I will stand by that. Like, I feel like even if he didn't hate Callie and attack her intentionally, I feel like the fact that they got together under the circumstances of violence towards her was like a bad sign for the relationship. Like if nothing else, like, sure. and I don't, I don't think that's because Tyrrell again, intentionally wanted to hurt her but just this idea of like 
that's the circumstances under which they start to have feelings for each other is problematic. Not necessarily from a writing point of view, but from like characters. Um, like that's not a good foundation for um, the relationship. Um, so, but I mean, apart from that, when they're on New Caprica, like I kind of agree with you, like I don't get the sense that he dislikes her or feels like he's settling. Like it seems like he's genuinely happy. And when they do kind of muster out and settle down and have start a family, I don't get the sense that he's this unhappy, repressed person who is completely bored with his wife or, you know, unhappy in his situation or whatever. I kind of feel like it's the, the, the kind of Cylon revelation of who he is makes him retcon and reevaluate both of those relationships. And I think it kind of turns Callie into, you know, this shrewish person that he never really wanted to begin with. And it elevates Boomer into this, what could have been tragic, romantic kind of thing of like, oh, if I'd only knew, known, that would have worked out and we would have stayed together and been perfect for each other. And so, yeah, I don't know. Like from a writing point of view, so, I, that doesn't bother me so much. Um, so you're, so you think it's just kind of the normal retconning that people do of their own lives. Sure. Yeah. Like, Oh, I, you know, lost my job, but it was the best thing that could have happened because now I'm in the place where I am now. Sure. Whereas, um, or, or, or vice, I mean, maybe like, maybe there's a, a good version of that. Kind right. Of like, right. Um, right. yeah, I mean, I, that's a fair, that's a fair point, I guess. Yeah, like, I, I guess, I guess maybe the revelation, and I'm only, I'm hesitating because I'm only really thinking of this for the first time. So I'm, I'll have to kind of find my way towards what I'm trying to say. But I don't know if I'm trying to like explain it. Maybe the revelation of the fact that he's a Cylon. I feel like it makes him maybe miss and appreciate and put on a pedestal this thing he had with Boomer in a way to be like, Oh, again, if I'd only known and and it tragically didn't happen because we didn't know the truth. But now that we know the truth, look what we could have, you know, and, and we could try to reclaim that. And it also kind of I feel like that's maybe some of the bitterness towards Callie is the sense of. Instead of being with Boomer, my true soulmate, I went this other direction. And even though at the time he never felt like he was settling, it's like in retrospect he does, you know, like I was a silent this whole time and yet I was with this human woman and we have problems. And so it wasn't, it wasn't what could have been. It doesn't have the ideal nature that, you know, the, that he thinks of the relationship with Boomer. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and it might exonerate some of his own 
guilt towards how he treated her of like, oh, well, we were doomed from the, we never should have been together in the first place because I was a Cylon and she was a human. It never would have worked out, you know? And it's less about like, how did we have problems that we didn't work out? Or how did I treat her poorly? Or, you know, like those kinds of problems that he would have to maybe take responsibility for. Um, yeah. It becomes about this like doomed relationship of these two people who were perfect for each other, but they didn't realize it, you know? Um, so I don't know. Yeah. And to go back to your question and restate it. Yeah. I kind of feel like the, the retcon is more Tyrrell's rather than the writer's. Because I don't think the writers put Boomer on any kind of pedestal here, given what she does at the end, you know, and given the fact that you can question her sincerity of what she says throughout. Um, I think that it's, the, the, it's pretty clear by the end that Tyrrell has her and has their relationship in one kind of light and Boomer has it in something else. Like, not that she feels nothing, but... Well, so that's kind but of But she doesn't question. sacrifice everything for it. You know, she has higher priorities than her relationship with Tyrrell. That's kind of my question is... And, and, I mean, I guess there's... Like, it's fine if the answer is, like, mixed or whatever. But, like, do you think... Do you think her projection of, like, like, do you think she's lying when she says, like, you know, I've thought about you ever since, like, I died in your arms kind of thing. And, like, mm. she's been working on, like, refining this projection, like, over time. And, like, like, like I mean, obviously it's not, like, I don't, I don't know how old, like, the daughter is in the projection but like say she's like 14 or 15 or something right like mm -hmm. you know in her, in her mid-teen like obviously like she hasn't been thinking about it that long because they haven't been out and about that long but like mm -hmm. maybe over the last year and change like she's watched her daughter grow up in her own projections kind of a, or do you think it's like just this thing she kind of like is taking, you know, Tyrrell's sudden visits to her cell to kind of use that as an opportunity to say, hmm, I wonder if, like, like, it's presumably they, like, I don't, I don't remember specific conversations they had, but, like, early on in their relationship, you know, I would assume that they were having discussions about are we going to have kids? Are we going to get married? You know, are right. we going to do this? You know, where would we live and whatever. And like, you know, so she would know the types of things that he would want and would be thinking about and dreaming about potentially having, um, which are things that he didn't have with Kelly. Right. Like, mm -hmm. so, you know, in the projection when he's like going to get the wine glasses and turns around and sees, you know, the, the quintessential marks of height on the door jam or whatever, or like on the wall. And then like, you know, goes, goes into their daughter's room and like 
you know, it's a typical teenage kid's room and like that kind of thing. Um, like, how good are Cylon project? Like, is that something that Boomer could have just whipped up right there? Or do you mm. feel like that's something that she would have had to have spent time on? And so that maybe the sort of like level of detail indicates that like she really has been thinking about it since she died in his arms, mm-hmm. which would include all of the time on New Caprica. Sure. Um, going based on my own feeling, because obviously I don't think there's... Sure, yeah. I don't... I'm not, I don't, I don't I, I'm, and I'm not gearing towards, like, one way or the other, because I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm not 100% sure of my own yeah, yeah. Uh, thoughts on this. Yeah, no, I... I feel like kind of for the reasons you said, my sense is she would have had to put time into it just because of the implication of the way that Tyrrell acts, the way that like Aaron Douglas plays it is like, this is recognizable to him. Like maybe he's never had a literal projection before, but like, the idea she's trying to evoke is familiar in terms of what they wanted. So I feel like, you know, she probably, that would require time and effort to really, and to know him well, to really think about that and get it right. Um, I kind of believe her that she's been thinking about it this whole time. I'm not sure that she has been thinking about it as positively as she maybe wants to imply that she has. Like, you can think about something a lot. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's all good of what you're thinking. You know what I mean? Like she's had a lot of bitterness towards the human beings for their kind of rejection of her and, you know, her, her kind of vehement swing towards the Cavill camp is a kind of rejection of the human parts of her, but she rejects it because she kind of, longs for it and the fact that she can't have it is what makes her you know the the bitter kind of person that she is so I don't know I kind of like I feel like there's a half truth there of like I kind of believe that like yes I've never stopped thinking about you I've never stopped thinking about our dream but I think Tyrrell fills in that blank with oh you're thinking about it with the same idealization and and love that I am and I think she probably has love but with that also comes a lot of pain and hurt and like I think that's maybe why she can kind of betray him at the end and he doesn't really see it coming is well I I think it's it's yes she's been thinking about him but clearly those thoughts aren't all good or she wouldn't be able to do that to him you know <laughs> so then so this is the other part of of the conversation i guess is do you see her it is is her projection and like her you know ability to sort of is she being manipulative do you think in you know as far as Tyrrell goes or do you think she's being opportunistic and I mean, um, and when I say manipulative, I, I mean like planning. Like, I mean, I think there's 
I think either either way, there's some manipulation going on there. But like, is it is it that like the whole time she's been like sitting in her cell, it's like, well, if Tiro comes here, I'm gonna do this and get him, and by doing this, I'll get him to do this, and then it'll work out this way potentially, and then I can steal Hera and you know. Well, you know, I can knock Athena out, you know, stop to have some sex with Hilo, and then go get Hera and, you know, rip a hole in the Galactica while I'm escaping. Or do you, or do you think it's like, well, Tyrrell's here. Wouldn't it be great if he let me out? Oh, hey, look, he killed a Sharon and is letting me out. So, hey, now that I'm out, <clears throat> here's an interesting thing. Oh look, Athena's in the bathroom. I better punch her in the face before she realizes. Like you know, and like like is it just like a series of actions that kind of have really bad consequences, but isn't necessarily like planned out in in her cell ahead of time? Mm. That like these are the steps I'm going to take if I ever get out of here alive. I feel like the Tyrrell stuff is somewhat planned, like. Maybe she doesn't know that he'll come and visit her, but I think she knows how to manipulate him if she if he if he does. Like yeah. that's my sense, is that like yeah. And there's a fascinating parallel with Angelus in this, which is only occurring to me now, of like person who's in jail and who manipulates other people with the truth. Like you know, it's not even like they're telling mm-hmm. complete lies. Like, there is truth in there. But, but yeah, I feel like if Tyrrell comes and visits her, she's going to exploit that. Um, now, the other stuff, I feel like, specifically the fact that she runs into Hilo and Athena and has to deal with them could be more off the cuff. Like, if she hadn't run into them, would she have sought them out? I don't know that she would just because maybe she'd want to get but- to... But Hero why is she like possible, in, the, in that bathroom? Like, like that's that's the question. That's the thing. Sure. I, like, it's a like good point. Is, is did, does she kind of go? I mean, maybe she's not intended. Like, I I think the Hilo thing is incidental, right? Like, Hilo comes in raring to go, and right. she's like, "All right, well, fine, why not?" Right. But like, although she does go for that rather enthusiastic. Like, there could have been other ways sure. around it. Um. So even that, you could see it as more vindictive of like. I'm not just going to escape, but I'm going to exact some revenge while I'm at it. You know? Yeah. And knowing that like Athena's in the closet, like right. watching bound and gagged, you know, right. and right. there's perhaps a sadistic pleasure in, in that, you know, especially considering that like we've seen Boomer, like, you know, doing her naked Tai Chi in front of, mm. you know, uh, Cavill and stuff like that. Right. Anyway, um, so yeah, so like, I mean, I like, I don't think it's a necessarily like a one size fits all answer, but um, I my question do, do is you... like, yeah, like, why does she walk into that bathroom? Sure. Like, it seems like she would know that, like, where where Athena would like the places where Athena might be likely to be, and we don't see her go other places, but that doesn't necessarily mean she doesn't stop it look on the way like yeah yeah you know whatever and then like 
Well, and that's a good point. Like, now that I think about it, I think she does kind of come into the bathroom a bit more purposefully than I had admitted at first. That, like, she could have noticed, oh, Athena's there. I better go the other way. But, no, she sees Athena, comes in, and, like, attacks her. So right. there's intention. Yeah. Right. Right. And, like, before Athena, like, I mean, Athena does say, boomer, and then it's, like, boom, punch in the face. But, like, right. yeah, like there doesn't seem to be surprise on Boomer's part mm -hmm. um, with that. Um, which, if we accept that, so if we accept that, like, her seeking out Athena is maybe, is, is at least, it's, it's at least possible that that's purposeful, mm -hmm. then her going to get Hera, like, is almost certainly purposeful. Like, it, like, because that seems like the first step of, like, yeah, take care of, like, the actual mother and then you can pretend with these stupid humans who can't tell us apart. Yeah. You know, then you can pretend to be the actual mother and get Hera and and go from there. Um, right. And I don't think we have any reason to doubt that what Ellen says at the end is true. That um, she broke Ellen out in order to go get Hera. Like, Hera was the point. Well, um, and that's, that's, I mean, but that's the question. Like, I don't, I don't doubt that Ellen thinks that's true, but I don't, like, I don't know. Is that, is, do we believe that that's definitely the case? Or is it just opportunistic? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I believe that that's true, but I can't actually remember specific like things that might get said in the next couple of episodes like if that's been an assumption or whether boomer herself confirms that at some point so maybe that's the thing we can come back to like in the last couple of episodes or something um because sure. yeah i mean yeah because we only have a few left yeah um yeah and i don't really remember for sure if anybody else ever, like, you know, confirms that or if that's Ellen's interpretation. Um, so. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's, I mean, and again, I don't, like, this isn't a case where I think, like, there are plenty of times where, like, Ellen says things and you can be like, yeah, she's probably lying or trying right. whatever. Like, I don't, I don't think that at all. Like, I think she's being honest and, like, giving her own opinion here whatever so I, I i'm not necessarily questioning her veracity or you know credibility um i just i just don't know i don't i don't know i don't, I don't actually know like i i don't know that we have enough information yeah. at this point to like i guess it, it just seems weird to me that like if hera wasn't intentional from the beginning if if ellen wasn't a ploy to get to Hera, um, then the conclusion is that she did genuinely want to break Ellen out, like for Ellen's sake or for her own sake to get in good with whatever. Like, I mean, does she even, I can't remember now in this episode, does she know that the Cylons are going to try her? Like what's her, what's her motivation to escape and kidnap this kid well, if if the plan isn't to get her in the first when, place when Tyrrell breaks out like i mean we don't we don't see Tyrrell 
and her actually together after he breaks her out, right? Like, it, like it goes dark. He mm-hmm. kills a Sharon. Then the lights come back on, and it's like that Sharon is in Boomer's place. And then, like, the next time we see Boomer, she's by herself, like, going yeah. into the bathroom with Athena. Right. Like, I don't... Uh, unless there's, like, a real brief, like, something that I'm forgetting. Um, we certainly don't get, like, Boomer and Tyrrell being like, hey, I broke you out because they're gonna try you and, you know, give you capital punishment and you'll be dead. And I don't want that to happen. No, but, I... like, it, w- it would be easy enough to think that, like, there were a few words like that that could have okay. happened, like, in the few minutes that maybe they spend together after he breaks her out. Right, right. And sends her on her way. Um, right. I guess, like, the thing that makes less sense to me is why, why kidnap Hera unless that was the plan all along? Like... Well, opportunity. I, like, I don't... Like, that's just... But opportunity for what? If we were assuming that she came... But if she, if she knows at that point, forget why she's there. Like, like forget how she, like, even if she, even if she came with the best, like, I could see her being like, I don't think it's unreasonable to think, like, Cavill's been lying to me. This is one of the final five. I need to get her away from Cavill, who clearly mm-hmm. wants to kill her, mm-hmm. because there's something bigger going on here. And believing that by doing that, self-delusional or not believing that by doing that she'll be sort of welcome back into the fleet with ellen mm-hmm. which clearly doesn't happen but mm-hmm. i could see her, i could see that as a motivation mm-hmm. for boomer without there being like a second plan of like i'm going there specifically to kidnap Hera and bring mm-hmm. her back mm-hmm. um on the other hand I can't. I can't rule out that there was the plan from the beginning. Like I'm. I, this isn't an argument to say that Ellen's wrong either. Yeah, like, yeah. No, I, I know. I don't necessarily mean to be like definitively mm-hmm. one way or the other. Because there is a sort of interesting parallel. If if you think that Hera was the tar- was Boomer's target from the beginning, that's what Athena did mm. with the base star, and then. Caprica mm-hmm. helped her escape from that mm-hmm. with Hera. So like sure. there's there like it's not un, like that type, the going to the enemy's ship and stealing this kid who is you know extremely important to the survival of both races is not without precedent. <laughs> right. Um so like it's it's not it's not it's like and like you could almost say that could give it more credence because it's like, hey, they did it to us. They'll never expect us to do it back to them. Mm-hmm. So like, let's do that as the plan. Um, but from like arguing from the opportunistic angle, mm-hmm. Tyrrell, you know, kills a Sharon, gets Boomer out, you know, replaces the body, whatever, and whispers a few words to her like you need you need to leave now the whole herrick thing could just be getting a hostage Mm -hmm. and like okay what's the best hostage i could get well 
Hera, okay, let me take care of Athena first and then go get Hera. And mm-hmm. like, the, and then one that becomes like, nobody will mess with me because they wouldn't want to risk killing Hera. But also it becomes a, I need a peace offering to give to Cavill when I get back. Sure. For abandoning him. And then she can say, it was my plan all along to do this. Mm-hmm. Even if it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter because now they have Hera. Sure. And that gets her back in, which would be an interesting parallel there too, because if you're going the opportunistic angle, then if that's a parallel to Ellen Tai is my key to getting back in with the colonial fleet, right. then then the opposite, you know, then Hera becomes her key going back the other way. Mm-hmm. Um either way, I think I, I think there's enough there that like with very little headcanon you can you can get to one conclusion or the other mm-hmm. um i don't think there's enough to definitively say one way or the other at this point sure unless unless you believe that ellen is like espousing you know what the writer's intent is here um well what I believe and what I can definitively prove are not necessarily the same thing. And I think you make a good point of like, I don't like you went through that pretty well. I don't think there is definitive proof and there are other interpretations possible. Um, If I had to, if I had to like, if I was a betting person, as I say sometimes, um, my sense has always been that that is that Alan is the mouthpiece of the writers in that Mm -hmm. moment, but that may be an assumption on my part. And I, you know, I think, yeah, you're right. Like there is nothing other than Alan saying that to definitively say one way or the other. Um, And, and, and I do want to try to remember to pay attention, like, when Boomer gets back to Cavill, does he say anything like, ah, our plan worked according? Like, I don't remember. Um, yeah, right. I, and, and I'll be curious to see if there is anything like that or if it's just, you know, if the mechanics of it are just sort of dropped. Because um, it, you know, depending on whether that ever happens, that could very much swing your interpretation of Boomer's character. Um, you know, of of how thought out, how intentional was all this and how much of it was impulsively driven or driven by, you know, more complicated feelings towards each side. Um, Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Okay. I feel like we've covered a lot of this stuff that, the only really things with Tyrrell that we didn't cover are kind of his two appeals. One one to the the other final five, excluding Sam, which I wasn't able to come up with a good name for that. The mm-hmm. the non comatose quartet didn't quite work. <laughs> um it's, it doesn't have the same ring as the penultimate four. Um But there I mean, you know, Tori is sort of like Cylon hardliner now, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Um, she's all for like trying Boomer, or at least allowing Boomer to be tried by the other Cylons, and mm-hmm. you know, doing that. Um, Ty's 
you know, in drunken sadness over the loss of his son. And yeah, Ellen is just kind of like in support Saul mode. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So nobody's really nobody's really like, yeah, wants to like interfere and, and deal with that. Um, much to Tyrrell's chagrin. Right. Um, interesting, though, on his part, that he's then willing to kill a different Sharon in yeah. order to save Booma. Yeah, which, like, I always, I forgot that. And, like, I had to watch it closely both times to see, like, does he just knock her out? But it seems like he It seems her. like she's dead. Yeah. Like, because her, like, eyes are slightly open at the end right. there. And it's like, right. there's, like, this blood dribbling down. Like, if if Laird dies from the blow that um, <laughs> Zarek gives him, then, right. like, it seems like Sharon, this, yeah. this particular Sharon, must also be dead. Which, that's, I, I wonder why they did that from a writing point of view. Because it majorly undercuts his moral high ground here. Um, well, and that's the, I mean, that's the thing is like the interesting part, of course, is that like, it's not really about like the ethics of like, should we capital kill, punishment. kill yeah. our, you know, Cylon underlings? It's, okay. it's really all about his love yeah. for Boomer. Yeah. At that point. Um, yeah. So. Right. Uh, but it is definitely an interesting that he's like. Yeah, it has it has nothing to do with the idea of like killing someone permanently. Right, know, killing, the, the, the sacredness of life. Yeah, but it it's it's about you know how much he feels for her. Um, right, it's it's putting a higher value on one life above somebody else. Yeah. Uh, when his appeal to the other silent, the the other, you know, final five there doesn't work. Um, he does go to Roslyn to to try to intercede, um, or to try to get her to intercede on Boomer's behalf. And Roslyn's like, nope, nope, nope. Um, and I just, I like, I wrote in my comments like, uh, Roslyn dismisses him, and I just said, bad idea, Laura. Like, I mean, we know that Tyrrell has a temper, and it's mm-hmm. like, like it's not the first time we're like. Carol's been like, I'm going to do what I feel like is right, regardless, you know, damn the consequence. Like, even before mm-hmm. he was a Cylon, like, yeah. remember the time him and Hilo, like, ran down and beat up and, like, killed a guy, like, mm-hmm. to stop him from raping Boomer? And, like, or was it Athena at that point? No, it yeah, was Boomer. Yeah, Athena. It was yeah. Athena. Okay, I'm sorry. I got confused there for a second. That's so hard to keep all the eight straight um anyway uh yeah yeah so it's like do you remember that do you remember like him just like like just so many like different examples of like him just going like not getting his way and then just going and doing like the most violent thing he can so in that sense like i totally can get like him killing someone like Mm -hmm kind of done it before mm-hmm. maybe he'll do it again um and like the way that she just completely dismisses him is really interesting to me too because like i just feel like that's like compare that to like her like 
conviviality with, you know, Caprica 6 <laughs> over, like, oh, I don't believe I congratulated you. <laughs> and, like, you know, like, that type of thing. It just seems, it seems a really weird, mm. uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think that is an issue of, like, I guess particularly with Adama and Roslyn as, like, the, the leaders and the executors of, you know, the, the fleet and, the you know, the crew and everything of, like, the arbitrariness of what and who counts as treacherous can get a bit frustrating which again i like i guess there is some like verisimilitude to that of people can be can have double standards and be fickle about these things but um but it's hard to understand why boomer and i know rosin's not executing her she's just handing her over so there's that like she doesn't again they don't want to jeopardize the alliance like the amount of compromises that everybody makes to not jeopardize the alliance it's part of that but like they you can, don't get they the can, sense that she like struggled hard over that decision. No, and and I I you know the way she says oh, you know Sharon Valeri you know preys upon feeling like you hardly know her you know yeah. like the the fact that Boomer who yes shot Adama but shot one person and didn't even really realize she was going to do it is villainized while Caprica Six, <laughs> who infiltrated and blew up billions of people. And and I say this as like mostly a fan of Caprica Six, you know, like in her later more um, loving and enlightened, you know, sure. way of life. But yeah, like you're you're cozying up to Caprica Six, asking her how her baby is. Um, but Boomer goes straight to the brig um, and can't be trusted and absolutely must be tried. And let's be honest, all, all certainly will be executed. Um, yeah. Is a huge, a huge um, double standard from where like the, the leadership is sitting, I think. Um, and I think and, there's a, you know, there have been many examples of that throughout the series, I think, of like what counts as treason or what counts as mutiny and what is the punishment for that. And maybe the punishment depends on who you are and how we feel about you. Like, you know, Lee and Hilo can get away with certain things that other people don't get away with. And, you know, there's, uh, you know, depending on how we feel about particular Cylons, that changes our response to, you know, how we react when they do things we don't like. Um, or obviously the fact that, you know, human traitors are worse than Cylon traitors, um, or, you know, or vice versa, depending on who you are. Like, it just, it can get a little bit, like, all over the place. Um, yeah. You know, I don't know. And I guess, like, okay, Caprica 6 is contrite and trying to make an alliance in a way that Boomer isn't necessarily like she has been allied with Cavill and they don't trust her for that reason and stuff. But the response is a bit disproportionate, I think, 
too. So as much as Boomer is a bitter little person, I kind of feel bad for her. <laughs> like, I don't think, I think she's a little bitter for a reason and some of it is justified. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, so that doesn't, appeal doesn't work, obviously, which kind of sets Tiro off and that's where he goes. Yeah. And, and breaks that. Yeah, um, and the the way Rosalind says dismissed makes me laugh. Um, sure. Would in a kind of like uncomfortable, like oh, Rosalind, you're being kind of right. a jerk well, that, right that, now. That, that's, that's what made me say like, you know, bad move, Laura. Yeah. Like that, not yeah. not a good way to like have handled that. Situation. No, this this like, is even, you're gonna pay for this. Like you even feel. I mean, not that like. I don't want to blame her for Tyrell's actions, of course. But you almost get the sense of, like, had she been maybe a little nicer in understanding, like, maybe he wouldn't have killed the Sharon. Maybe he would have just knocked her out or mm -hmm. something. You know what I mean? Like, maybe there's even, like, a sense of, like, part of, like, the severity of what he does is in reaction to that sort of dismissiveness. Yeah. Um, and, and whatever. Um Again, not to blame her for his actions, but, mm -hmm. you know, just to kind of point out that, like, maybe she was a little more yeah. dismissive than she needed to be. Yeah, yeah. Like, literally, in yes. saying the word right. dismissed. Um, so, I mean, so Boomer escapes, uh, knocks out Athena, screws Hilo kidnaps her kid gets to a raptor and like tries to leave realizes that like she's going to be shot down and so like uses the FTL drive like right mm -hmm. you know next to the ship basically and like blows a big hole in the drive right um which is bad yeah Right, right. So looping back around the sense of hopelessness and monotony and breaking down of the ship is, is you know, yeah. Like there's even more damage now. Severely, we are yeah, worsened by this. So, yeah. So that's where we kind of leave it off. Mm -hmm. Um, which is good because we've gone over time and we need to talk about uh, Angelus. Yes. Um, but before we do, yeah. you had a very important production note. That yeah, which I wanted I'll, to make sure we brought up. I'll let you go into however much detail you want. Um, but um, yeah, Samwise Gamgee directed this episode. Yeah. Which I, uh, Sam I, I telling one of the great stories, right? Yeah. Right. Um, they, don't they never end? Um, I. Didn't notice that when I was watching it, but went to look something up in the transcript and it was kind of helpfully posted at the top, well, you know, directed by Sean Astin. I was like, it can't be that Sean Astin. And sure enough, it is. So, yeah. It was. Um, and like. Yeah, good for him. I mean, help me remember the timeline here, but when were they when were they making Lord of the Rings? Like, is this like between movies? This is like pretty soon afterwards or maybe between them. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. What year are we in? Exactly. So this is like 2002. Oh, two? 
Maybe. Okay. Yeah. All right. So principal photography is done, but they're still going back for like reshoots and, you know, doing press and everything. So it must be in between all of that. Yeah. So, so it's basically concurrent with. So yeah. the, the air date of this episode was February 2003. So I have to believe they shot it in late 2002 or, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So he's in the middle of, of Lord of the Rings stuff. So, yeah. So, yeah. Which I know we made a short film on the set um, of Lord of the Rings because it's on one of the DVDs. You can go watch it. Um, okay. Um, so... Not surprising that he was, if he was interested in directing, I guess he was looking for yep. opportunities to do that. Um, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. So there, there's like one article out there that I was able to find um, on this. And actually I linked to it and we can add it to the notes and, and whatever in our, um, when we post the episode. But uh, basically, yeah, like it was, he, he, uh, so the article says that he was friends with Dan Petrie Jr., but I think they mean Doug Petrie. Okay. Because Dan Petrie Jr. is a writer and director, but has nothing to do with any Joss Whedon stuff. And as far as I know, they're not related at all. Okay. <laughs> um, so I think they must mean Doug Petrie. Okay. Um, uh, just real quick. So, like, Dan Petrie Jr., like, did, like, Beverly Hills Cop and uh -huh. The Big Easy and okay. like some movies like that, Turner and Hooch. Okay. So like, <laughs> like totally different sort of milieu from Doug Petrie. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, I think they probably just got that wrong. Yeah. Uh, but maybe, I don't know, maybe there is a connection that I'm missing. Um, anyway, so basically friends with we're gonna assume doug petrie mm -hmm. um and basically i guess was just talking to him uh he so this is a quote you know i from sean Aston. i expressed to david when i got back from lord of the rings oh there you go when i got back uh my fervent desire to be directing episodic television i said i'd love to do an episode of angel um so apparently this is like another case of like he was kind of a fan of the show mm -hmm. um kind of similar to like michelle trachtenberg with with buffy um, Sean Aston, exactly like Michelle Trachtenberg, basically. <laughs> um, uh, and Those child uh, actors who, you know, yeah, and so, uh, uh, D David being David Greenwald, um, who he met apparently through Doug Petrie. Um, and so he said, come on out and get to know people, and if they're comfortable, we'll, you know, get you in there. So he basically, so Sean Aston basically went out, um, and shadowed. Uh, David Greenwald and Tim Minear, um, it says for a couple of weeks in the previous season, um, watched a bunch of the episodes and then basically they assigned him this episode to, to do it. And um, I think it's kind of an interesting episode because this is a, this is a really kind of different episode than a lot of other angel episodes. Mm -hmm. So I, I mean, I, we can talk about, like, because, I mean, we've talked before about how much, like, the director actually does versus, mm -hmm. like, the writer and has control over the story. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, like, I mean, um, there's a quote in the article from David Boreanaz who says, 
you know, he was great. Sean, Sean was very enthusiastic, had a lot of good energy, came to the table with a lot. His experience with different directors that he's worked with was very beneficial. And, um, you know, so, you know, how much of that is just him being nice to a guy who's, you know, just start in a major, you know, three film production. But like, there's also that sense of like, yeah, like he, he came into it, like really being a fan of it, like really wanted to do a good job and was looking to do more of this type of thing. And so I don't know, I guess does the fact that like most of this episode is just like Angel talking to people in a cell. And then there's like stuff obviously in like the upstairs part of the hotel or well, Mm -hmm. like the lobby part of the hotel. But like, it's, it's really not, other than going out to like the severe, the severe, the severe, I, mm-hmm. I forget how you pronounce it. Um, and then like a little bit with Connor, like at the very beginning, fighting a few vampires. There's like none of the normal angel stuff that happens in this episode. <laughs> right. Um, right. Yeah. So, so I, I mean, and maybe that's good. Maybe that's what makes it good for like a first time. Not not a first time director because like yeah there are, he did do some short stuff and and whatever before this but the first time like for like an hour long mm-hmm. TV episode you know directing debut kind of thing right um, and it's like weird because I'm tempted to say like you know I'm surprised that this is the episode he directed just because there's not much visible direction here like you said like they don't really do much or go many places it's mostly people in rooms talking usually only two people um and there's not even a lot of blocking or action within that Mm -hmm. um on the other hand maybe that's an obvious pick for an actor turn director where like okay the point of the episode isn't what's happening visually and, you know, lots of plot movement and sets and, you know, any of that, the, the, maybe they want someone who is, you know, I don't know if this is a stereotype or not, but I would feel like the idea would be that if you have a background in acting, that that would mean that as a director, you're sensitive to the actors in particular, rather than other things that like, you can look at things from an actor's point of view. Um, So maybe it's helpful or intentional to have a piece that's largely just about the dialogue and about the character interactions. Um, And I'm not, maybe it's both. I'm not sure if that means that as an actor, Sean Astin can like capitalize on that. Or if that means like it's a way of, dipping his toe in of like, okay, you get to direct, but it's not something that is heavy on moving parts really. Um, so. Yeah. Or or again, maybe it's both. And you see, you're playing to both the strength of the, the director and the piece that they're working on to find the best fit. Um, so just to sort of round out the production note side of it, though, uh, we'll note that he directed one other thing, another TV episode that same year in 2003, and has never directed anything since. So 
while he may have been really enthusiastic and desirous of becoming a director at that Mm -hmm. point, clearly that did not end up being, you know, what he went on. And, you know, I mean, at that point, he could do whatever he wants, including nothing, you know, like he he can do whatever he wants at any time from here on out. And directing seems to be not the way that he wanted to go. He certainly, like, continued to star and and voice roles and and a bunch of other stuff where he has a bunch of acting credits since then, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was this, and um, one episode of a, of a show called Jeremiah, which I did not know about literally until about 30 seconds ago when I just looked it up, well, starring, and, starring Luke Perry. Well, and um, he was in that show, wasn't he? Oh, I, maybe. I, I think, I I think so. I think so. So there you go. Like, he had an itch, he scratched it, and apparently would, has been satisfied since then to not. Sure. Or not direct anything since then. Right, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, who knows, like, why that is? We can only speculate, or I don't know, maybe sure. there's interviews that we can dig up. But, um, yeah. Um, all right. So, yeah, Sean Astin. The other little production note I wanted to talk about was the music. So, um, and not the, not the, like, incidental score music, whatever. But um, we get a couple of times a snippet of Angel singing a song. And I wanted to just point out, um, I actually, so the reason I looked this up was I was wondering um, if it was lyrics actually from Into the Woods. Hmm. because the lyrics that Angel sings are, if you go into the woods tonight, you won't believe your eyes. If you go into the woods tonight, you're in for a big surprise. And I, I don't know that musical, but I'm just like, oh, into the woods. Is that like, is mm-hmm. that a song there? So I looked it up. Um, turns out it's not from that. It is from a thing, though. Um, it's from a song called Teddy Bear's Picnic, which um, the tune was written back in 1907. Um, and then apparently... Uh, in 1932, uh, someone else came along and put lyrics to it, um, and, and and the tune was actually called Teddy Bear's Picnic, and so the lyrics that got put to it were basically um, in which, like, the narrator, like, goes down, like, disguises himself and goes down and watches, like, the bears frolicking, like, in the woods having a picnic. Um, and it's like a children's song, but like it was like recorded by like a bunch of big names. Um, and we can link to like a YouTube clip um, of uh, uh, Henry Hall and his orchestra, which was like kind of the first audio vocal recording of it. Um, but it like went on to like be, you know, done by a bunch of different singers and stuff. And has apparently had its quite the heyday of, popularity um the the lyrics are a little bit different it goes uh if you go down in the woods today you're you're sure of a big surprise if you go down in the woods today you'd better go in disguise um and again Mm -hmm. it's like all about going down in the woods and like spying on these bears having a picnic so i don't know if there's like more to the lyrics than kind of what we get but it's it's angel sort of manipulating those lyrics into you know, if you go into the woods tonight, you won't believe your eyes and, and you're in for a big surprise and, and kind of um, 
playing on that. Um, but yeah, apparently it it it's one of those songs that there it's alluded to in a lot of things and kind mm. of has had its heyday and been around a while and and so gets its share, but um, was not from the musical like I thought it might be. No, no, I can see why you would think that. Um, I knew it wasn't because I know that musical pretty well. Um, fair, fair enough. But um, yeah, and like the the switch to tonight rather than today seems like the significant change. But but that um, evoking that that same thing that Into the Woods does of the fairy tale, but the dark gothic fairy tale, you know, of like mm-hmm. the woods are where the big bad wolf lurks, and you know, other sure. you know beasties and villains and monsters and everything so angelus kind of relishing his role as the the thing that is in the woods to be feared and everything um yeah um so apart from that i i want to talk less specifically about angelus himself than with each of the others kind of paired off one by one. So yeah. um, kind of thought we could go through them. And the, the format is just to generally say kind of pretty much the same. It's like they talk and Angelus pushes buttons and manipulates people. And, you know, they are bothered by this to varying degrees. And then, you know, things, you know, progress from there. So I think, that's fairly straightforward. It's just a matter of like which buttons does he push, and yeah, yeah, and and whose buttons is he pushing? Because it's not always the person who's there talking with him, right? Yes, it's like right, right. Some of the things that he's saying is because he knows that people are watching on yeah. the cameras, yeah. you know, from above, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Which okay to start with Wesley. Um, that's a good point because the scene is with Wesley, but it's as much about Fred and Gunn. As it is about Wesley. Um, and and the fact that we don't see right away that they are watching on a monitor, right? Like, or unless I totally missed that, it, it came as a, not a shock, but like, there's a moment where he's, you know, talking to Wesley and saying things and, and doing his manipulative thing. But then it kind of cuts to, it, it's the part when he's talking about, um, like, Gunn and Fred being together and, you know, he likes to rub that mm. shiny bald head against her and everything. Sure. And and you kind of, your first impulse is that, oh, he's trying to make Wesley uncomfortable or jealous or whatever. But then it cuts to Fred and Gunn listening in. So you're kind of, you know, only at that point is it really revealed that other people are mm-hmm. are hearing this. Um, sure. And so, yeah, it is as much about making Wesley jealous of Gunn, but also about, you know, raising Gunn's hackles as far as making explicit Wesley's feelings. Like, Gunn knows about this, but it's kind of a taboo subject. Like, it's the only, he's the only one who's pointing out the fact that Wesley has, you know, feelings for Fred or is trying to win Fred over it's not like ever anybody else has really been 
saying this. So it's more like angel or not angels, Angelus's confirmation of the fact that like, you know, this isn't all in your head. It's clear, it's obvious, and it's true. Um, well, and you even get like Fred, like we can't believe anything Angela says, but then Gunn's like, well, how about the stuff that's true? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. which again, and then you get like Cordy, like, well, he's, you know, he distorts the thing. He lies with the truth. But then like Gunn's like, yeah, but that's like, he's not actually distorting that much. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, he doesn't say it quite like that, but like he's, he, you know, which is true. Like, like Gunn is actually the right one here. And it's like the others who are still kind of, they're trying to like, you know, put the toothpaste back in the tube. Right. Like, and, and, right. and do some damage control here. But like, I don't know, like it's, it's that thing of like, does Fred really not know how Wesley thinks about her or is it, is it just like, she just doesn't want to believe it or it mm -hmm. doesn't at least wants gun to think that like, she doesn't believe it. Um, you know, there's like a couple of different possibilities I think there for interpreting it. But the fact of the matter is it's like cats out of the bag. You're not going to like, you know, once, once that sort of thing is out in the open, like you can't unforget about it. And, mm -hmm. and again, like you said, like this sort of becomes the pattern of like everyone he talks to, there's things like that, mm -hmm. um, that sort of come out. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. And I want to get into Fred Gunn and Wesley and like their, the fight that breaks out, but maybe to kind of stick with Wesley for a second, he kind of starts with the, um, you know, with, with the Fred stuff, but there's other things in there too about Wesley's status in the group and his self image. Like, and he kind of goes, like, I feel like with Wesley, he covers the most ground in a way of like, he hits him. Sure. He hits him at the relationship with Fred. He brings up the troubled relationship with his father. Um, he sure. he brings up all of his his betrayals and his failures, you know, of like, you know, you stole Connor and let, you know, him get taken. You, you know, sleep with Lila. You let them attack Lorne. You, like, he brings up all the things, that the mistakes that he's Even made. Faith. Yeah. Um, faith, right? Like being a, a failed watcher who kind of wasn't able to protect or guide faith in, you know, in the ways that he was supposed to. Um, and like even down to like his insecurities of his competence of like, you know, oh, you have, you've projected now this image of, of, coolness and toughness and you know this lone wolf thing but basically that's all just a ruse mm. you're the same um what does he say you're the same loser none of the other kids wanted to sit with at lunch um which again is potentially true just maybe for different reasons like it used to if if, if it's true that maybe the other watcher kids thought he was a loser and like picked on him and didn't sit with him at lunch. It was because he was 
that kind of over-eager, goofy, um, and, and slightly incompetent version of himself that we first met. And it's like, well, now the other kids don't want to sit with you, but it's not because you're not competent necessarily. It's because they don't trust you or they're angry because of decisions that you've made or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and okay. But the reasons have changed, but basically it's the same. You're still an outcast. You're still not one of the group. Um, yeah. So yeah, and and then kind of rounding off with like, you're not the hero, you're not the champion. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter what you do that's right. You're never gonna be called the champion. Um, that's not your role. And like, the best you can hope for is maybe to minimize the damage you've done and maybe redeem some of your mistakes. But you're never gonna be the hero of this thing. Right. Um. So yeah, I guess it's interesting as Wesley is like, is kind of acting like the leader, like the guy in charge, and like Angelus just goes for every single insecurity that he can possibly think of. Sure. And I think, I mean, we can talk about how each of them handles the different things, but like, one thing I will say for Wesley is like, compared to early years wesley right like i feel like he handles this rather well and mm -hmm. gets to that point of like okay you've had your say now can we like you've had your fun can we now talk about like yeah what i'm here to talk about um right you know he kind of lets angel or angelus go through all the different things and but doesn't really lose composure um over any and I, I mean, I guess, I guess that's growth. Like, I don't know. Like, does that seem like, or, or do you disagree? Like, do you think he handled it poorly in some ways? Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. No, I mean, I think, uh, no, I think he comes away fairly unrattled. And the fact that he, you know, keeps repeating of, I know what he's going to do. I know the kind of things he's going to say. And he's done all the reading and everything seems to fortify him against that a little bit. Um, and, as and, far as buttons pushing, my only real question with Wesley is there's no denying the feelings that he has for Fred. I guess what I'm not sure about, um, how much of it is true and how much of it is just trying to get, you know, gun riled up but the implication that wesley is intentionally trying to steal fred away and intentionally trying to move in and come between them um is the only thing where i'm like hmm, i'm not quite sure which of those like is it just that he has these feelings and he can't do anything about them but he's not actively trying to i mean Okay, we're going to talk about, like, what happens in this episode. Like, that specific, yeah, like, like up, kiss up aside. Until up until now. Yeah. Is he trying... Is it part of a plan to get back in with the group? Is part of that getting the girl away from Gunn for himself? Um, and 
I hadn't necessarily felt like that. And maybe this is me being manipulated by Angelus too, but it makes you wonder, like, I don't know, maybe Wesley does want that to happen or is actively trying to make that happen. Um, yeah. And I think I, maybe that's a thing to I, maybe keep an eye on for future episodes and stuff, but. I would say it's unclear myself. Okay. I, okay. I don't. Well, good. Cause think it's you, unclear to me. So. I don't think you can completely rule it out, but I, I do think that like, his willingness to like break up with Lila and, you know, call things off there. And, and he does sort of like, he acknowledges because like Lila kind of makes the same accusation, right? Like, Oh, what? So you're going to go after Fred now. Mm -hmm. And I don't like, I think Wesley completely avoids answering that question. Mm -hmm. And so I think you can say, well, does he avoid it? Because it's kind of dumb and it's just Lila like, you know, trying to stay with him or, or does he avoid it in like, because it's kind of true. And like, he does, maybe, maybe he does think that there's a part of him that, you know, yeah. Can offer something that gun can't, which is basically what he does say later here. In yeah. This yeah. Um, right. So yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't being manipulated and I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily think there's enough evidence to say one way or the other for sure. I, you know, I like Wesley a lot and I've, Mm -hmm. I've said from the beginning when we first saw Wesley that I think Wesley has the most interesting arc of any character in Angel and we're not done with the series yet. So like, Mm -hmm. I don't even mean like to this point, like, Mm -hmm. There's still more to come with him for sure, um, but liking him or not, like I can't definitively say. Like mm-hmm. in the in this in these particular span of like the last few episodes, like did is he arranging things to like be closer to Fred? Like maybe I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The one thing I'll say, too, that I find interesting, though, is that I do, like, yes, Angel, like, gives a lot of these criticisms, but I think, I think one of the things with Wesley's character has been, and and maybe continues to be, a consistent breakdown of his ego. Mm -hmm. Because, like, when he, he comes to, you know, Sunnydale, right from the beginning, it's, I'm a watcher and I'm intelligent and I've read all the books and I know all the things. Um, some of that drops in, even in early angel, but he's still like thinking of himself sort of grandiosely of like the rogue demon hunter. And like, you know, he still has like this experience and like ability and like, like we've talked about early in the season, like they're like under pressure, he does actually pretty well, mm-hmm. but like, there's still like, there, like some of his arrogance and stuff kind of like prompts him to like take on too much or like do things that like he shouldn't do. But I think like here, like he never saw Angelus, which was, I think Cordy pointed out at one point, right? Like mm-hmm. that she's the only one basically who had ever even seen Angelus before. And so, um, I think it's really interesting here when he says, 
when he admits that like Angel's smarter than me, like mm-hmm. or Angelus is smarter than me, and like you you need to pay attention. And there's all like I get the sense that he's almost maybe worried isn't quite the right word, but like certainly understands better than like maybe any other time like what the actual consequences here are and is actually going against because of all the mistakes that he's made and because of all the things that I think Angelus points out here like is realizing that like he's not Angelus is up to something and Wesley doesn't know what it is and knows that he doesn't know what it is and doesn't know how he's going to try to twist things on him. He just knows that that's going to be what happens. And I think that's one of the reasons why he does so well, Mm -hmm. you know, with staying composed and watchful. And even later, like when, you know, Angelus gets Fred in sort of a stranglehold, Mm -hmm. he's able to come down and sort of detachedly like, put two tranquilizers in him and and you know figure out what because at least in at least in in that part of it he's able to let go of it now you know does he let go of his ego and everything in this episode well no and so we can talk about how that happens but um sure sure. I, i i feel like that's that's one of the it's slow but over the however many seasons that we've seen him now at this point you know one one of Buffy and then I guess like three and a half of Angel, right? Like that's been the thing that I would say is the most consistent about like how his character is developed is just that consistent and continual breaking down of ego. Hmm. Um yeah. At, sure. at least at least as far as like I know everything and know how to fight all the demons and like that kind of stuff. Right? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, okay. So before we get into the stuff with Fred and Gunn and Wesley, um, I think there's less to say about Angel with Fred and Gunn because I think the fact that maybe Wesley is prepared for this means that he is harder to crack. And that's maybe why Angel or Angelus goes in all those different directions. Whereas Fred and Gunn is much more straightforward. And yeah. you know who's not good at dealing with Angelus is Gunn. <laughs> sure. Like, Gunn is the most easily, his buttons are the, the closest to reach and easiest to push. And then it's maybe because he needs the least provocation in the sense that his problems are closest to the surface. Like, he's already pissed about this stuff before anybody even you don't even need to really manipulate him because he's already kind of having this fight and spoiling for this confrontation and everything. Um, so it really doesn't take much. Um, yeah. The only, um, the only thing I'll note is, uh, I hope that the Othello reference isn't prophetic, you know, like I don't, I, I'm worried. Hmm. I'm worried that hmm. uh, I don't want I don't want Gunn to kill Fred. That would suck. Um, I mean, and 
beyond the the interracial couple aspect of it too um there's the question of okay is the implication there that fred doesn't have feelings for the other person because that's you know with with desdemona it's all it's all iago's manipulation it's all whispers in othello's ear and you know kerchiefs that are stolen and misplaced like it really has nothing to do with desdemona at all um Mm. now how much is that true of fred is she completely innocent in this well um yeah i mean he says desdemona wasn't in love with the other guy which is yeah very there's implications there right and if so if we're if we're taking what Fred's warning and Cordelia's warning about Angel lying with the truth, right? Like mm-hmm. how like how much is that true right. of like right. Angelus's, you know, observations about or Angelus's interpreted interpretation of Angel's observations about mm-hmm. you know, the triangle there. Yeah, yeah. Um which like so, yeah, when Wesley kisses her, she kind of kisses back, you know, at least for a couple seconds. She doesn't pull away immediately. Right. Um. So there's that. And maybe as telling or more so is, is the covering up to gun. You know, it's like when you start which they've been for a little while but when you start with the lying then it becomes harder to get over the thing you did wrong in the first place you know like all you're doing is digging your hole that much deeper um by refusing to acknowledge that anything even happened or that there's a problem that deserves yeah to be addressed um so it's whatever her feelings and her actions it's disrespectful of Gunn and the fact that, you know, he deserves to know what's going on. So, mm-hmm. um, there, there's also, so, um, the other thing that Angel brings up is, um, you know, bosses, right. And guns like don't have a boss. Right. Which, yeah. Which, I noted that word too. Which, yeah. Which isn't really true. Um, but then, I'll, but then Angelus is like, might want to tell Wesley that. Because, like, you know, at one point, Wesley was the boss. Mm-hmm. And, right. and he is Angel, acting like it. Yeah, Angel didn't really leave, like, if this, you know, if this whole, like, losing a soul thing, like, right. Angel didn't really leave, like, a succession plan. Right. In, in place, right? Like, right. like, the one, like, well, I mean... There's another obvious flaw that we'll get to at the end of the episode <laughs> in their plan of like, what happens if we lose Angel's soul? Yeah. But um, barring that, like the the one big like flaw in this plan is like, yeah, like okay, if Angel's like the nominal boss, not nominal, but like the actual boss, then like who's who's like acting boss while he's gone? They don't ever specify that, and so mm-hmm. you end up having like. This is why you have, like, everyone, like, taking turns going downstairs. is because, like, nobody's in charge and can just sort of be the person. Right. right. Um, and, of course, like, that grates on Gunn 
who does obviously think of himself as an independent sort of contractor, I guess, who just mm -hmm. is like working with, not necessarily for Angel, but, um, you know, yeah. certainly Wesley at this point, he believes isn't his boss and that's that rankles him quite a bit mm -hmm. um and of course like with all of the various news and things lately today wesley just sort of going up and kissing fred especially mm -hmm. if like he's acting boss <laughs> um you know you get things yeah. like al franken today just announcing that he's gonna leave because of you know allegations that he forcibly put kissed you right. know people who were under him and right. that sort of thing. So right. Um, right. just a very interesting take on that. But like, I mean, the other thing, as we saw, is that like Fred did kind of reciprocate there. So sure. What right. And regardless of how she was going to react, does that change his right to do that? Yeah. You know? I mean, um, right. there's, there's issues of consent there. Like, when when do you you know it, is it okay if there's reciprocation or you know you, like you still probably should have asked first maybe but um, sure yeah uh you know yeah well and, there, and then there's issues of Wesley and Gunn respecting her autonomy here too of, of sure leave her out of it you leave her out of it well I'm over here well I didn't know she came with a deed like it you know yeah. um I think it is unclear what Fred once it's unclear to them it's unclear to the audience maybe it's unclear to fred herself um mm. and so um yeah and and so somebody needs to ask her or she needs to like assert some opinion or agency here um so yeah and denying it is not gonna do that <laughs> so that's not like a great move for, you know, diplomatically handling this conflict. Um, so. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, like, in the scuffle, she's the one that gets elbowed in the face. So you have all that, you know, the, the symbol of, you know, I guess the potential here of for gun in is trying it, to reckon with Wesley. Is this a Wesley. foreshadowing of the uh, Othello and Desdemona then? I mean, well, uh, I mean, potentially, like, emotionally rather than physically. Like, hopefully it doesn't actually kill her. But the idea of, in your pursuit of justice or revenge or whatever, it's going to be other people that get hurt. Yeah. Um, in one way or another. So. Yep. Um so we we shouldn't uh so we talked about Angel and Gun, but like or Angelus and Gun, but like Angelus also says stuff to Fred too, like when they're down there about mm -hmm. her bedroom noises. Right, um right, right. That's like and, the main the main interaction, right? Which is, you know, whatever implications you can can say there like i mean clearly like she's very private and and want and keeps that 
part of her very private as you know many people do and Mm -hmm. and yeah i mean it's it's just another form of manipulation i guess i don't know that we need to spend a ton of time on it but just to point out that it's not all just like gunn and wesley like right well and the like you're right like she's private she's not flaunting that side of her life you know i mean they're affectionate but they're not like it's not like they're this couple that has no sense of personal space in the open so the implication being that she is that way that she like oh my gosh we hear you all the time you know, I'm like right down the hall and I hear everything and it's loud and obnoxious. And like, it's this Which kind of may or may not even be of... true. Like Angel, no, like this could like, just right. be Angelus saying it and like, yes. you know, yeah, it, you know, playing on her fears that that, you know, right. right. part of her life is not as private as she would like it to be. Right. And that, yeah, like that, that's, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of slut shaming of making her feel ashamed for that part of herself. Um, And yeah. And I mean, I think to take that one step further then becomes if there is a desire, if, you know, confusing or unclear though, it may even be to her, if there is any sort of desire to Wesley, then it becomes like, Oh yeah. Like there's an added level to that sort of slut shaming and being like, you know, your promiscuity is like exactly you know right a problem or whatever um right you're you're playing them off each other you're sending mixed signals you're leading people on yeah. all that kind of thing yeah um yeah no i think that's kind of uh implicated in there um all right so Moving on to Connor. Yeah. Um, Twerp really gives me the creeps. <laughs> There's a couple little self-referential comments like that in here. Um, the other big one being Fred's, like, that's ridiculous. That would be like sleeping with your, oh. You, yeah. Like, you feel like that. that's a, they put that line in, like, as oh, a tip yeah. to, you know, like, there's a self like, okay, we get it. Yes. Um, Fred is voicing, she's the voice of the audience there. Um, yeah. And they really play that up in this episode of... There should be a play. <laughs> yes, right. Um, and like... Which is don't... interesting that he says that to Connor. Sorry, I, I, I was just going to say like, it's interesting he says that to Connor because like, would Connor have any idea of like, the Oedipus story. Like, he didn't grow up here, so, like, how much does Holtz, like, tell him about, like, ancient Greek tragedies? Um, I don't know. You're sitting in a hell dimension, you're bored. Sure. Maybe you need stories to tell. It's possible, I suppose, but probably not. I don't get the sense that they were too bored in the hell dimension. Like, I kind (laughs) of feel like the whole, like, the stuff that he learned was along the lines of, like, just surviving day to day. How are we going to make it to next Wednesday? Um, yeah. Yeah, no, he probably doesn't get that reference. Um, but so 
you know, and Connor, I think, plays up the bratty kid thing in this episode, like, even saying to Cordy, like, don't tell me what to do. Like, you know, kind of reverting to talking to her, like, you know, she's the grown up or she's his mom even. Um, and she kind of orders him around a bit like that, like, not in a inappropriate way, but like, you know, when she tells him to leave the basement, like she has the authority to kind of dictate that. So they have kind of reverted to this parent-child relationship a little bit. Um, so I guess the main thing, and it leaves Connor in a, you know, a little bit of a cliffhanger here. Um, you know, he, so he comes back from fighting the vampires. Cordy gives him some of Angel's clothes to wear. Um, and then he goes to talk to Angelus and there's kind of an interesting line about, you know, uh, what does he say? The truth is Angel's just something you're forced to wear. You're my real father. And it's like, after the kind of big deal made about the fact that he has to wear Angel's clothes, that's kind of a mm -hmm. conspicuous line of like, Angel is this uncomfortable thing that we both have to deal with. And we're forced to wear or conform to the idea of this person, but neither of us are really comfortable or happy with it. Um, and using that as like a thing that unites them, I guess. Um, I guess it's possible that Connor is trying to be manipulative here, that he, that he has some sort of agenda and is maybe telling Angelus what he wants to hear, but I don't think we have enough proof to say that that's the case. It's, mm. It seems, if we're just reading it straightforwardly, then he is flirting with this idea of, you know, feeling more aligned with Angelus than with Angel. Um, not that he trusts Angelus or thinks that he's good, but if Angelus is the real vampire, then I guess he could see that as the actual father figure rather than, sure, you know, the kind of angel is like a false personality in Connor's view. Like it's not who he really is. It's just this suit, this uncomfortable suit that he has to wear sometimes. Um, yeah. And I think, or, or maybe it just becomes then easier to like justify killing him. Sure. Right. Like maybe it's, maybe Connor's been playing a game more or, or like maybe even if it's not a game, but like he's actually been kind of warming up to Angel, this kind of reverts him back to like, what was his mission in the first place? It was to kill Angelus. And this is Angelus like now. Mm -hmm. So does that then just make it easier to be like, okay, I, now I really can kill you. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, yeah, sure. Now, and those don't have to be mutually exclusive, per se. Yeah. Um, and I guess the only other thing 
which hadn't really occurred to me before was Angelus pointing out that all of his parental figures have killed themselves. Um, so, of course, what child wouldn't blame themselves for that? Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's certainly a sore spot for Angelus to sort of yeah, Although, go for. wasn't it technically Justine who killed Holtz? I mean, at his order. I, I guess. guess, but like at his, yeah. it was his idea. Yeah. Um, assisted suicide, I guess. Um, but yeah, which potentially complicates the wanting to kill your father plan. But yeah, um, there's, sure. you know, there's all that. Um, all right. I guess Cordy is next. Um, so Cordy comes down um, with a plan. Um, I mean, he doesn't, Angelus doesn't really even get to try to manipulate her too much because she kind of comes straight down with her proposal um, and they go straight into that. I mean, the and, only- And she the turns only, off the camera. Yes, right. Um, yep. I mean, the only thing before that is him making, like, crude comments sure. about, like... She looks good on everybody. Her yeah. looks and, yeah. you know, but, you know, and her, you know, shame about the personality, like, you know, with all this. So, like, objectifying her and belittling her, you know, her, her th this new mature, you know persona of Cordy at the same time, which I'm sure is, you know, any, any assertive woman has to be sensitive about her personality. So I'm sure that that can't help, but hit a, a sore point. Um, so yeah, so she comes down with this deal of no more stalling, no more games. You tell us what you know, you get me. And she says that you know what it means what it means to be a champion. Sometimes a sacrifice needs to be made. And then she makes him look in her eyes and, you know, Angel knows me better than anyone. So when you look at me, you know I'm not lying. Um she is, actually. <laughs> or lying by omission, I guess. Like she leaves out the part that she comes back to later, which is, oh, you know fine print we have to actually like get something out of what you tell us and if it leads nowhere and we don't save the world then that's not in the terms of the contract and deals off um so i mean i guess is, is cordy just that good of a liar that she can look in his eyes and he'll believe her um or is she expecting it to work and intending to follow through on the contract, I guess, is open for interpretation, I guess. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing is we don't think of Cordy as a liar. Like, right from sure. day one, it's... Cordy is the truth teller. Like, sometimes it's harsh, sometimes mm -hmm. it's savage truth, right? Like, 
you know, the other title that we were going to pick, you were, you were savagely honest with me, right? Like mm-hmm. that kind of describes what we think of when we think of Cordy, <laughs> um, right from the beginning. So yeah. So thinking of her as like a liar is tough, but like, I don't like maybe part of it is that we just don't know enough like we just haven't seen her lie enough to really know. And so yeah, I don't know that you can necessarily figure out one way or another, which is true. Um I tend to think like I I would find it hard to believe that like Cordy would actually like if all things all things being equal and they found the beast and banished it or killed it or whatever. Like, would Cordy then like throw open the doors of the jail cell and say, Angelus, take me. Like, mm-hmm. I find that hard to believe. Sure. I f- especially believing at that point that they have his soul mm-hmm. and knowing that like, if they put the soul back, Angel's going to forgive her, obviously. Mm-hmm. So like, I, my leaning is towards that she's lying through her mm-hmm. teeth um and that she's just that good but like i i'm open to if you have a different interpretation or or yeah suggestion like i i think that's yeah maybe just my wanting to believe that cordy wouldn't just sort of needlessly throw herself at no her well, and I, mercy. I i guess i mean i i probably agree with that but then that has implications of the fact that like okay she is successful in her ability to just lie straight to his face you know and the fact that he would buy it um so is this is that so if that's the case and sorry um but just if that's the case is that a result of her time in coming in time as a higher power and coming back like it like gives maybe this a new not like a new power but like a new thing with Courtney that like oh sometimes she lies now and like I don't disagree that there are implications in that but what I guess mm-hmm. what are the implications if if that's the if if I mean or or is there something else going I mean is this just an adaptation of like she mm-hmm. just needs to be a liar now and so she lied and it worked <laughs> like mm-hmm. i don't know any yeah. thoughts around that um no not really i mean i'm not sure that i have if there nothing jumped out to me as like relating specifically to her time as a higher power um like i don't get the sense that we get any reference to that as a thing that um enables her to do that um so maybe it is just that in the right circumstances and i mean it's not like she's this isn't kind of like cordy's bluntness in order to tell people the truth that they need to see like this is lying to like the worst villain that they've ever encountered Mm-hmm. So I certainly don't think that it undermines her right. 
There's no ethical problem no. with lying to Angelus. No, th- and I don't think this suddenly makes Cordy a liar per se. You know, I, right. I don't think that Angelus counts in that no, way. This is, this is like extreme circum. This is like yeah. the type of question you get in like philosophy one hundred and one. Like this bizarre. Like if there's an apocalypse and you were faced <laughs> yeah. with a vampire and you had to lie to them, like yeah. would you do it? Or yeah. is like lying categorically, you right. know, always wrong? Like right. right, like this is a bizarre trolley problem. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I guess. It's less about is Cordy capable of lying. It's more a question of, given all the talk about how intelligent Angelus is, does he fall for it? Like, or is it maybe he doesn't buy it, but he'll play along because he knows he can try to use something to his advantage at some point. So and 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 and, 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 sorry. Well, and is what he tells them true? I don't know that. Like, but yeah, you know, like maybe he's playing along too. Of like, all right, if that's, that's the game we're gonna I, play, like, how do they know what he's telling them is I the truth? Thought of that aspect of it. Um, so to step back though, so Cordy. Um, yeah, like, so, okay, so totally agree that, like, Cordy doesn't, like, this doesn't necessarily brand her as a liar just because she's lying. I think one of the things, I don't think Angelus has to believe her. I think she only has to make him Intrigued unsure. enough to play along. <laughs> Or that, like, I, I, I think it's just, there has to be seeds of doubt. It's okay. not that he has to, like, oh, she'll definitely, like, give me everything that I want. Right. But Keep there's definitely, yeah. definitely maybe of, like, hmm, maybe I could get something more than just, like, he knows, like, one of the problems with Wesley being so sort of hard and, you know, stalwart kind of in his questioning is that like Angelus knows like he even says like you're doing this all wrong right like where's like the carrot basically Mm -hmm. um same thing kind of with gun but just like gun's just angry and like wants to kill him and whatever and and Connor as well like like there's not any possibility really of getting what he wants unless they like screw up like happens basically with fred he's not going to get it but with cordy like all cordy has to do is sow that seed of doubt that like angelus is wrong about her not giving like she doesn't have to make him she doesn't have to convince him that she's that she's telling the truth she only has to convince him that she's not 100% lying. Right. <laughs> in order sure. to, like, intrigue him enough to go along with the plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. As far as the... As far as whether the story is true that he tells, I, I honestly... I didn't even consider that 
aspect of it, to be honest, because I just assume at that point, he, like Angelus wants to be like, okay, like, cause what's really, like, what's really at issue here? Like, he probably doesn't really think that they can defeat the beast anyway. Mm-hmm. But like, I feel like at that point, he's at least intrigued enough to see like, if Cordy will follow through on his promise. So I kind of feel like that's one argument for it. But then also like, they actually find the Savea, you know, mm-hmm. women and they're dead. But like, like that it's true. Like they find references to them. They find yeah. like the banishment spell, which was like out and like apparently about to be used. And like those sort of objective elements to me make it seem like he's probably telling them at least some of the truth. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, whether it's all all whether it's all true or whether there are other things that he doesn't tell them that he knows, like remains to be seen. But at least at this point, like I feel like a lot of what he says is true because they're able to sort of independently find out. Right information about them and find where they live sure um it's amazing how many like powerful mystical beings live within like a 20 minute drive of los angeles hey it's it's 25 minutes without traffic let's go um yeah it's funny which is funny because that was kind of like lampshaded in the fantasy that angel had of like oh there's this only this sword can kill the beast but Luckily for us, there are a hundred portals and one of them is right here. You know, like they play on the coincidence of that. But then yeah. like here, it's just like completely like, oh yeah, they're like half an hour. Well, and like, like, and then even going back to, you know, the raw Ted or whatever, like the, mm-hmm. you know, like two of them are like, like one of them's in Wolfram and Hart and the other one's like a short drive out to some caves, like right. nearby. Right. Like, and, a, and a third at the docks. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's quite, and, and all right, granted, LA's a big city, like, it's not like, you yeah. know, a small town or something, but at the same time, it's like, you would think these these powerful mystical beings would, like, spread themselves out a little bit. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. Um, so, you know... I don't, I mean, we're, we're way over. I don't think we need to get too much into (laughs) the mythology. Like, I think what we learn is fairly straightforward and we can assume unless, unless we find out otherwise that it is accurate. Um, I mean, yeah. yeah. Uh, So, so, I mean, I, I think we can assume it's accurate. I don't, I don't think, because it's like, we're giving it in flashback too. Like that's, oh yeah. So Sean Astin did flashbacks. Um, but anyway, like, um, I kind of feel like let's just, un- until proven otherwise, let's just sort of assume yeah. that this is accurate. Okay. And so, um, yeah, I mean, the basic story is the Beast wanted Angel to kill the Sever, 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 something like that. Um because for some reason the beast couldn't like directly kill them. Right. And so yeah, so like what's he do? Well, how do you attract Angelus? You kill a bunch of people to do mm-hmm. that. 
Um, and but you know the women come and banish the beast from there, and presumably was banished then for hundreds of years until his re, you know recent re-emergence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's kind I'm, of it. Like I don't like. There's really not that much to the story. Well, and I don't want to get into a huge speculation thing because again, like trying to wrap up, but I think there are some unanswered questions though, like. Um, why, we still don't know why Angel couldn't remember this. Um, sure. We don't really get a Maybe he adequate, just doesn't remember the good stuff. Maybe not. Blocked it from his memory. Um, we, I don't feel like we really get an adequate explanation as to why Angelus re- refuses to help the Beast. Um, he, like he says, he he declined, but like, why wouldn't he go for an opportunity to kill the priestesses? I'm not quite sure that I understand. Um, yeah. Why can why can the beast now kill them and he couldn't? Can we can we answer then? these as as you go along, or do you want to list them all out first? Because I feel like well, if you have answers, I'll, I'll, I'll I feel forget. like well, I, I mean, like I, they're open I have responses but... whether they're answers oh, or okay. whatever, like to some of these. So like. Okay. Okay. Um, one. Why well, can't we, Angel remember the beast? Yeah. All right. I don't have an answer or a response. Okay. To that one, so that we can skip that one. That's Number fine. two. Why um, did Angel decline to kill the priestesses for the beast? I think we can chalk that up to just Angel's capriciousness in general, or Angelus's capriciousness in general. Um, but it's killing people. But it's for. But it's for someone else. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like. Darla being the exception, like, Mm -hmm. Angelus was a loner. And, like, Mm -hmm. yeah, he killed people and had fun doing it. But, like, I don't necessarily think that means it's just, like, I'm going to kill the people you want me to kill for whatever reason. It it just, he kills people for fun and profit. Like, I don't don't think it, I don't think there needs to be, like, a deep-seated uh, logical reason, mm-hmm. you know, that's sort of an airtight argument for why Angelus doesn't kill. I think it's like, he didn't feel like it. And that's good enough. Mm-hmm. Like, I, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, okay. I'm not, I'm not fully sold on that. I just, I feel like. But why? Like what, what, like other than like, I didn't feel like doing it. Does well, like what because, other what other reason works better than that? Because the beast then is going to it's it's the priestesses that save Angelus because the beast is going to attack Angelus and, then. And, and, and incidentally, like, like do the priestesses even know he's there at that point? Because he's kind of knocked out on the ground. He might just look like another dead body to them. No, but what I'm saying is I feel like <laughs> Angelus I don't understand why the bother of having the beast as an enemy when you could just, I don't know. The, just the, as the, the beast doesn't either. But like, again, like that's capriciousness isn't logical. It's just capriciousness. <laughs> I guess, I guess I, I'm, I see Angelus as a more intentional, like, you know, mind than that of 
like if you can get to do what you enjoy to do like enjoy doing and also like not put yourself in the path of this powerful beast and it is for profit because sometime down the road he's potentially going to do you a favor of some kind i don't feel like there's a good reason for him not to do that other than like well we didn't want him to do that at that particular time from a from a, like a, a writer's point of yeah. view like i don't see a good character reason um that's all um i guess the other one too maybe there's no answer or it's just like not addressed is like uh how much am i supposed to be bothered by the fact that he used to not be able to kill the priestesses but now he can the beast um does he yeah does doesn't the, does the beast kill the priestesses i thought they said that yeah and the, like the, the priestesses are dead no but somebody's well the, i guess this is an assumption but somebody i think it's gun says like well i guess he can kill them now like they make some reference to like oh i don't remember that i yes they're dead i just assumed i just assumed that that was like due to the fact that like they've got a bunch of people or a bunch of like demons and stuff coming in like that's the whole like beginning of the episode with connor of like mm -hmm. there's so many demons and vampires and stuff coming into town like it's they're just wreaking havoc and destruction i mean i didn't i don't i, I thought there was reference to the fact that well they, they said um i mean they at least are taking this as the beast knew we were going for the priestesses and he beat us to it because they say when they get but, back but he thinks mean, oh he's specifically he's, or did he just find some other vampire dupes to do it like i i, I don't know that is and that's a possibility i mean they do I, there is a line about that but maybe that's just their what, what's the line i'm sorry i didn't write it down but somebody says something about um like he must have found a way to kill them now and he didn't used to let's pull up the transcript I'm looking for We're going to see. I don't, find out. I don't remember that line. Um, All right. We're going to the Google machine here. So what, what was it again that you think it was? Um, that's a, what I think. Right, who, who cares that we're 40 minutes over? We're going to find this damn reference. Yeah. Um, Shoot. I believe it was gun. Now I'm uh, determined to prove this. Um, bah, 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 bah. People have been dead for a few days and Dell's had nothing to do with this. Which means by the time the shaman was shaman was going all chant, young angel was already too late. It's Fred. It's Fred. I found it. Wesley, no, here we go. Gun, what happened? Connor, vamps. Fred, you didn't get this veer. Wesley, no, the beast did. Slaughtered the entire family. Fred, I guess he found a way to kill them after all. 
So it could be he sent somebody, I guess. Right. Yeah, I don't take that as like the beast himself literally killed them necessarily. Okay. Maybe maybe he did. I don't think that's the only interpretation. Sure. And I'll be honest, like, I don't know how important that is. Sure. And maybe the fact that it's not that important and there's like not that much detail. I don't know. I was getting the impression and it seems like it's the wrong one that like, I think this is what led me to wonder how much Angel was leaving out in his memory, in his version of the story, because it seemed like there were a lot of holes in it. Um, But maybe it's just a matter of it doesn't need to be quite as detailed as what I'm making it out to be. I mean, recognizing that you're an academic at heart, I I think some of these questions are like, yeah, you're looking too closely at stuff. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't. I don't, I'll take exception to that because I think there's plenty of times where we do this and we look closely at things and. Sure. Um, you know, I, I, think, I think this is one of those instances where, like, you know, maybe I am looking closely at it, but I think, like, the reason I started looking closely was because as I was watching it, there were things that didn't make sense to me. And I feel like if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't have been as prompted to put a microscope on it, I guess. It's a script problem. I'm saying. Um, That's all. And it just, you know, it made me wonder about how much of the truth we were actually getting from Angel or Angelus to begin with. And that's also another potential explanation. Like, I feel like because it's flashbacks, though, like, typically we take flashbacks as being what happened right sure yeah so yeah like if, I mean, if, if, if if it's if that's what happened then like i i guess again like going back to the thing of like why does angel refuse it like why is he just didn't want to do it like not enough of an answer <laughs> mm-hmm. I I guess I don't I don't see where like I get what you're saying when there's like like okay like with Drusilla like yes he like tortured her and like there was like a plan there to like torture and mentally like derange her if that's even the right mm-hmm. way to use that word but like and we've definitely seen him have plans and like have fun with people and do and and work with others so like on the one sense like i get what you're saying there but like on the other hand sense it's like i just i i feel like because he plans things out sometimes that doesn't necessarily mean that like he always wants to plan things so like for example my sister-in-law she's an event planner terrible at planning things in her like day-to-day life when it's not like work-related stuff like but like explicitly because she's like i do it all day i don't want to do it you know for my own life i would much rather like just do things no i i get i get that it's it's not the planning it's that i don't i don't see a legitimate reason why 
it wouldn't be just in his best interest to just go ahead with what the beast wants. Well, I mean, that's just making maybe a poor judgment of something like people incorrectly, you know, determine like what's in their best interest all the time. And that goes for vampires. And just cause I don't, I don't know that we need to think that Angelus is perfect in like determining what's always in his best interest either. Yeah. I don't know. I think, I don't know. It's just not very well fleshed out to me. Like this whole backstory. Because I feel like a lot of emphasis is put onto what happened between them. And then what we get just isn't very fleshed out. So I was expecting more. I was just expecting more there, I think, than what we're getting. So maybe I'm looking for like more about this kind of famed relationship and what all this alliance was when they're really kind of wasn't one um well wait what same relation like that's the whole point is that they didn't have an alliance right well the, but the, the whole point we, is that they don't ever do well anything. now we know this but up until now it's been the whole idea of like you know oh you knew the beast way back when and all this stuff and i guess i was just expecting there to be more to that backstory um well, but there are lots of times in shows where we expect things and it turns out not to be the case. All right, but it's not very interesting. That's all I'm saying is like, <laughs> you know, it's, it. I'm just not that impressed with it. That's it. All right. And I don't know where there's, the fact that there are holes was leading me to think that those holes were intentionally there. And what I'm getting is that they're not, they're just you know it's just like holes that led me to think there was mystery i guess and i don't know maybe there isn't so i will drop it all right <laughs> well on that note <laughs> so the soul is gone at the end that's the only other thing we have to say um yeah uh, apparently yeah. And we have no idea who took it. I mean... Well, I mean... You don't. I don't. You do. <laughs> we, we, the watching audience. Or, or yeah, like, what happened to it, I guess. Yeah. Um, the, the assumption being that someone took it. Yes. Which isn't... Which is a fair assumption. Like, I, I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying... Yeah. We don't know what happened to it. No. Um... So, yeah, we will have to catch up on that next time. Yeah. Um, which reminds me, I forgot to actually look this time to see, are we, is this, uh, are we going right into the next episode or do we have Buffy next time? I, I think we have Buffy next. Um, I don't remember. Yeah, my, uh, this, the spreadsheet here is taking too long to load. Um, I don't know. Well, I guess we'll be surprised. We'll have to. We'll have to come back and uh, surprise you next week with. No, uh, no, I've got it. It's Buffy next. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, my for some reason it's still not loading. So good to know. All right. Well, on that note.
we will uh, we'll talk about Buffy next time. And and we're down to like the last few episodes of BSG. Yeah. Yep. Right. One more standalone, and then the finale in in three parts. Right. Yes. I yep. think That's what we. So the last say. like single episode. All right. All right. Sounds good. See you then. Thank you.